If you could open your Bibles, please, to Psalm 42. There are weeks when prior to preaching, I have to preach a sermon to myself first. And then there are days where minutes before preaching, I have to preach a sermon to myself. I'll let you guess which one this one is. As you turn to Psalm 42, um, I, I want to I want to give us just a, a bit of a a picture in our mind um, as as we turn to this text, and uh, I believe there, there could be a, a helpful one in uh, in in a story I heard recently. So my parents have over the years taken great intentionality in maintaining a relationship with my, my children. And this is often wrought about in communication through uh, Amazon Alexa, the little screen on, uh, when, on, on our counter that doesn't hear us or register what we say when we talk to it. And uh, what they'll often do is they'll, they'll read books to my kids during breakfast. And there's been lately one in particular that they've been reading through. It's the Laura Ingalls Wilder book, Little House in the Big Woods. Familiar? Okay, some nods, yeah. If you're familiar with the story, then you may remember a point in the book when uh, the mother of Laura Ingalls Wilder is out in the field. It's kind of during the failing light of dusk, and she sees a creature kind of moving about right beyond their little fence, and believing it to be the family cow, she walks toward it, calling it, and in trying to motivate it to move from where it is, she smacks it on the rump, to which she comes to the shocking and horrifying realization that the animal that she has just slapped is not the family cow, but a wild bear. Now, meanwhile, as this is taking place, Paul of Laura Ingalls Wilder is also making his way home after spending the day in town trading pelts and getting all that the family needs. And as he wanders through the light, or wanders through the dark, and the light is beginning to fade, and he's in unfamiliar territory, he comes to a, uh, an unfamiliar area, and this, uh, he, he kind of strains his eyes, and what he sees off in the distance is this very frightful image of a bear standing far off with beady little eyes looking at him and his, his claws glinting in the moonlight. As, as Paul looks into the eyes of this monster, he stands frozen, utterly unable to move in fright. And after a spell of time, he kind of works himself up into some courage and he begins to dance around and yell and make noise to make himself seem bigger. And I believe he grabs some kind of branch or something, don't quote me on it, and what he does is he, he runs after the bear screaming and he brings the branch heavy down on the, the bear's head. And to his surprise, the bear neither crumbles nor retaliates with aggression. It just stands utterly still. And that's when the fear kind of begins to leave his eyes and what was once a bear standing in the woods ready to eat him is the trunk of a tree. At times, it seems to me that this could be a prudent expression of, uh, of what the psalmist's topic here is going to be that we are going to hear in his song in Psalm 42. At times, we, we kind of look out into the world and we see problems of, of people 
and we, we, we believe they're simply like a small issue, kind of like the family cow. And yet what we ought to, to realize is that we need the preparedness and the readiness as if we're looking at a carnivorous beast. And yet at other times we look to the issues found in the soul of man and the dark terrain around us and they appear to be as daunting as a bear standing off in the distance ready to consume us when really we're looking at a tree trunk. And so my prayer is that today we would put on the lens of God's word. And hear from the Lord what it is that he would equip us with that we might respond to one of man's most common issues. That he would equip us to respond to these issues. The issue I refer to is a heart of deep downcast. What is modernly known as depression. Read with me as I read aloud from the book 2 of the Psalms. Psalm 42. To the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. With shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. My salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon. From Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God. My rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Now this is a rather well-known psalm. It's the first psalm in book two of the psalms. And we have much that we can actually begin to learn from the psalm simply by looking at the title alone, which is written explicitly to the choir master. This helps us to understand that this psalm is written and meant to be sung by the congregation of Israel. This psalm was not meant to be merely an individual devotional, but a song to be sung as a congregation. It was either written by the sons of Korah, in this terminology, of the sons of Korah, 
a godly and mature group of worship leaders in the temple or written by David, particularly in their, de- in their dedication. It's labeled as a maskil. Many have given their educated guesses as to what this means, and ultimately, we don't know. It comes from the same root word as to instruct or to be wise and well-learned. And so thus, we can see from just this title alone that this is a psalm in order to be sung by the congregation that it might instruct the hearts of the people of God. There is indeed much that we can learn from this incredible psalm. It's been of late commonly called the depression psalm, which is not terribly far from a helpful description. Uh, As we will see today that the purpose of this psalm is in fact to be a song for the congregation to sing, to train the hearts of God's people to praise Him even when they are downcast continually. So, we find our psalmist here in a very sorrowful state. His very first words are, as a deer pants for flowing streams. So pants my soul for you, O God. There's this passionate yearning that launches us off that we hear in the heart of this man as his deepest desires, his inner thirsts are being left utterly unsatisfied. The song sings quite similarly, in fact, to how one might write a song today. There's this pleading, this yearning taking place in verses 1 through 4, when suddenly then a chorus breaks out in verse 5, which then this repeats again in a pleading and yearning from verses 6 through 10, finally to end again in the very same chorus proclaimed in verse 11. And through this psalm, we will pay particular focus to just six responses to this spiritually mature man, this son of Korah in his emotional pit from his response to being deeply downtrodden. I pray that we are instructed as to what it looks like to be faithfully depressed. Firstly, we see his first response to his spiritual state. We see him cry out to the Lord in honest proclamation of his soul, in his desperation to the Lord. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? He uses this intense imagery here to to express that it's as if he's dying of thirst. And who is it that will be his utter satisfaction? Who is it that he yearns for? Who is it that this excruciating longing drives him toward? The one and only that can utterly satisfy. There is one and only that he longs for and it is the living God. There is no replacement God on this earth that will meet his truest longings. And this psalmist's first response therefore is in the deep darkness of his soul. He cries out in longing and asks God, When shall I appear before you? Where is his longing and and, and his yearning for this living God driving him toward? The gathering of God's people. 
He longs for the special presence of God found in the gathering at the temple. Where he can stand and rejoice in the special presence of God where God has chosen his, his presence to reside. So something is keeping this psalmist from the presence of the Lord. How many of us can relate? How many of us know this experience intimately? How often has the presence of my soul in a depressive state caused my heart to feel isolated from man and far from God? Surrounded by people praising Him and yet feeling utterly hindered as though I'm looking through a glass box at these swirling, freely smiling faces that can never understand my burden or my sorrow. As I've been preparing to open this psalm to you, I want to be very honest. I've had to self-analyze quite a bit, more than I anticipated. I've had to consider whether I really long to stand in the special presence of the Lord the way this psalmist does. Particularly in the congregation. Do, do I know what a holy and glorious reality it is that's taking place when I gather with you people? When we stand here as a people, not knowing what one person has come off of the street with, perhaps a deep and heavy burden for Turkey and Syria, or elation over good news for someone that we love. And yet, what a holy, magnanimous place that we can worship the same God and rejoice in Him together and weep for one another. Are my eyes open to the joy of such a gathering and the significance of God's people gathering in His name to hear His word proclaimed? I invite you to search your heart with me. Do we delight ourselves in the presence of the Lord the way that this despondent man does? Do we thirst? So what is it that has led this psalmist to such a heart of despondence? Well, he longs for the intimate smile of God to be upon him, to stand in the presence of the Lord of life. And yet, what is he getting instead? Verse 3 says, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? The psalmist has lost all desire to eat. His tears have in fact taken the place of any real and true nourishment he might have. While in the depths of his own sorrows, he has no appetite and the pleasures that he once enjoyed seem utterly empty. But this isn't all. Because there are other voices here amidst the psalmist. Do you hear this? That he's now subject of some kind of mockery. Life is clearly not going the way he would like. Because I don't know about you, but I've never heard someone ridicule a man saying, where is your God when it's sunshine and dancing? Usually it's when Syria and Turkey are decimated. Where is your God now? Whatever state he finds himself in, he's hearing accusations against his God that the Lord has abandoned him. And this psalmist is honest with his agony. He's, he's not showing up on a Sunday morning seeking to fake it until you make it. There's no placid, I'm fine, everything's fine, nothing to worry about here. 
oh, we are a people who need this song to teach us to be honest about who we truly are before the face of God. Yet notice who the psalmist calls out to. It's not his social media followers that are seeing these vague kind of hints and confusing statements, making them question if he's reaching out or calling out for help. He runs instead to the Lord, even though he feels such an utter distance from this God. Why? He knows that the God who is able to make a Bethel in the middle of the desert for Jacob is able to make a ladder to heaven in any soul as it calls out in prayer. However far he may feel, he cries to the one he's far from. It is here that our psalmist shows us his second response to the reign of his soul. He calls to mind times of past joy, praising God. Verse 4, he says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. He remembers not in some kind of passive sense of remembering where he left his keys. Rather, he intentionally calls to mind that which would have easily been hidden behind the fog of his circumstances. As he pours out his soul, he will not be found accusing the Lord God of doing wrong. So he calls to mind what sweet mercies the Lord has already given him. He calls to mind the days he would lead the worship service of the people of God. That holy elation that swells in the soul of someone who is fulfilling their eternal creative purpose. That joy that is found in glorifying the one and only who is worthy of all glory, all honor. In all of his isolation that he now feels, that will not be where he lives. Rather, he sets his mind to when he was with the throng, a great multitude of voices who sang out in shouts of praise. How many of us, when struggling with Deep sorrows have exactly the opposite response. We often will long even more than normal to isolate ourselves, to go off on our own. Like water molecules in a pot of boiling water, when the heat of life turns up, we scatter from one another. But the psalmist sets his heart to treasure the community of faith by wisely recalling those dear times of worshiping the Lord with the throng. Our psalmist continues. He responds in a third way to his heart's downturn. With his memory wisely exercised, he now preaches to his soul in this chorus of verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation. And into verse 6, and my God. What is He doing here? He's preaching to Himself. Listen here, He says. Account for yourself, self. You see, the psalmist knows and therefore instructs us that his emotions are not the description of reality. 
He knows that what is taking place in his heart is from his heart. Therefore, as real as it may feel, it is not the description of reality. How many of us need this song to teach us such a similar lesson? When we are wounded in our souls, when we don't get what we want or what we think we deserve, we begin to listen to ourselves, don't we? When this happens, no more will my heart be ruled by God and His Word, but instead I'll begin to listen to how I feel and what I want and what I wish for. And in doing so, how often will my day be ruled by a single glance of someone? How frequently will a family gathering be brought to a bitter destruction because I feel like I'm in a bad mood? The psalmist will not let himself do that. Rather, he is going to preach to himself. Hear him quarrel with his emotions. He tells himself what he is to feel. These emotions have no right nor authority to do as they please and be what they please. He is going to set his heart, and it is not based on what he experiences, but based on who he knows. Hope in God, he says. We must understand here that he doesn't speak of hope as as we often use it. Hope is not just wanting something a lot. But biblical hope, true hope in seen in scripture, is the sure anticipation of what God has promised because of who it is that promised it. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The psalmist preaches... Do you feel no joy in, your, in the Lord, your soul? Remember the times of old. Do you remember those mercies and graces of your faithful God? He hasn't changed. So what has? Listen up, soul. Why do you think you can go about as if the Lord is not who He is? No, sir, not a chance. You are not the ruler and creator. You are not the sovereign and the king. You are to hope. Hope in God because of who He is. He is your joy. He is your helper, your delight. Put your hope in Him, soul. For you belong to Him. And that's it. The end. End of the psalm. A plus B equals C, right? Our psalmist did the right thing. He preached to himself when he didn't feel like it. And yet it's not the end, is it? Our psalmist is not yet done instructing us in his song. We've only heard the first refrain. The psalmist then responds in a fourth way. To this enduring darkness. It's not over, is it? He doesn't simply feel better. How do I know? Because he continues. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Here he begins to affirm God's faithful love and sovereignty. His soul is still cast down. He did what he was supposed to do. He spoke to his soul. He did not allow it to rule him. And yet, darkness persists. One might even say it didn't work. My soul is still in distress. So now he calls to mind. 
He calls to mind times of past tumult when he experienced the Lord's faithful love. These places, Jordan, Hermon, and Mount Mizar, they were all places where King David found himself far from the temple and in desperate need of the presence of the Lord in his provision. And whether the psalmist is David here writing for the sons of Korah, David remembering God's faithfulness to him in these places, or the sons of Korah pointing back to God's faithfulness to his king in the past, what matters is that the psalmist now remembers who his God is. He calls to mind who this Lord God is as his soul still refuses to soar but clings to the dust. He recites to himself the past faithfulness of this God whom he has set his downtrodden hope upon. Deep calls to deep, verse 7. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Here he affirms the Lord's sovereignty. He affirms the Lord's sovereign hand even in this, his darkest days. This imagery is that of a boat between raging waves below and raging rains above. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, just as a thunderstorm of rain will stir up the waters of the ocean. So, for, for right now, this psalmist feels as though his circumstances are conspiring against him. It's as if the armies of the waves are calling upon one another to team up against him. So he describes this feeling as if the ocean is teeming up with the rains to destroy him. There's no fake smile on this psalmist's face. Rather, he calls out to God an honest acknowledgement of the waters that are stirred against him. But notice, who do the breakers, the waterfalls, the deeps belong to? Your breakers and your waves have gone over me. In the midst of his persistent darkness, he affirms who is still in control. He is saying, I know you're God. I know you're in charge. I know you could turn this from me in a moment if you so willed. You could end my suffering, but you haven't. Now, how is such a cry not a curse toward God? How do we know that he isn't casting dispersions upon the God who seems to have cast him away? Because of what his fifth response is to his deep sorrow. So fourthly, he affirmed God's love and sovereignty over this dark time. And then now he pleads and sings praises to the God of his life. Verse 8, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. He sings to the Lord at night, pleading and praising. This is his fifth response to his turmoil. 
He sings of the steadfast mercy of God who by day commands his love to pour out as billows to his people. And by night he puts a song in their soul to sing until the dawn breaks. He reminds himself that even this dark time in his life is under the steadfast, unyielding, uninterrupted love of God. The psalmist is so downcast that he cannot even sleep. I wonder who of us have been there. But in this moment, he does not cry out for sleep. But rather, he sings praise to the Lord who's given him a song to sing when he can't sleep. I have slept like a baby for weeks. And last night, I couldn't sleep. I don't know if it's irony or the Lord just is teaching me something. But last night, my soul just wanted to plead for sleep, not sing. I need this psalmist to instruct me. The psalmist is so downcast that he can't sleep, but he doesn't cry out for it. He reminds us that no matter the exhaustion of our souls, the Lord has given us a song to sing in the darkest of days. That we may put our hope in the Lord. In his song he pleads with the God who holds his life. Verse 9 he goes on. I say to God my rock. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Now what is this? Is the psalmist listening to himself again? He cries out, why have you forgotten me? Does he actually think the Lord has forgotten him? Of course not. Why do I know that? Because this is God, His rock. This is the God who by day commands His steadfast love. This is the God who gives a song to sing in the night. This is the God of life who hears His prayers. So what is He saying? Is He theologically truly forgotten? No. He knows He's not forgotten. But it feels like it. And wouldn't you know, it looks like it. He knows he isn't forgotten. He knows that the Lord does not go against his covenant. That the Lord is more unchanging and immovable than a lighthouse in the midst of a rain flurry. But he is honest enough to look to heaven and say, God, I feel forgotten here. Forget not that the solution to deep sorrow is not here seen as feeling better. It's not getting what I know in my head down to my heart so that I can feel it. No, it's standing on what God says to be true. Hanging all my hope, no matter how I feel, upon Him. And in the midst of these wounds of the soul, the psalmist feels forgotten. He is yet not alone. 
because there follow behind the curses of his enemies that mock him. Surely you must be for God. And surely, he says, it seems like they're right. Does this ring true in your soul? Have you maybe just tasted some of this? There's a song for us to sing. Yet the psalm will not end with the scoffing voices of his tormentors. Sixthly, he goes on, singing through the night as long as his soul still thirsts. He comes to his chorus again. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. And there it is. His song comes to a close as he starts back over saying what he's already said to himself. Already. He upbraids his soul afresh. He commands his soul to hope in the Lord, for he is his salvation. He is the Lord God. So then the song ends seemingly like a gong ringing off into eternity, unresolved and unending. Where's our happy ending here? There's no proclamation of everything being okay. No hint as though the psalmist is in a better spot or is free from his soul's harassments. This song is like the song that never ends. It just goes on and on and on, my friends. Okay. I was hoping that would land. I'm thankful that y'all actually know what I'm talking to. It's been written that it might go on in perpetuity. It's written to be sung again and again. And it gives no opportunity to stop. Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God, as a deer pants for flowing streams. My tears have been my food. Why are you cast down on my soul? Deep calls to deep. Why have you forgotten me? Why are you cast down, O my soul, as a deer pants? He sings on and on. This song is to be on the lips of the people of God when they inevitably walk through tumultuous and dark days. It's a song that pours out the desperate thirst of the people of God for their Lord, their living God, the God of their life. Not merely for their desire to to escape their sorrow. It is a crying out that their hope might be found in the Lord and in the Lord alone. It trains their hearts in speaking truth to themselves as they sing as a congregation. They then begin to speak truth to one another, preaching to their own soul, becoming preaching to the souls of those who gather with them. So now when we see the intent of this psalmist is in fact simply to keep singing, can we say that the psalm hasn't worked? No, we see that this psalm has very much worked. Why? Because the psalmist is still singing. 
The goal in times of terrible despondence is not to change your emotions. It's not to change how you feel. If this were the case, we are no better off when we feel better because we're simply slaves to how we feel still, nonetheless. When you come to Christ, you do not guarantee a life of happiness. Rather, your definition of the good life, the happy life, changes to be whatever the Lord God says is good and blessed. The reality is that here in Psalm 42, what we see is a worship song written by a worship leader to stir the hearts of God's people to worship when they can hardly even speak. It helps His people to be faithfully depressed, to be the God-glorifyingly despondent. Now what ought this to communicate to those of us who are in the congregation of God's people? If God inspired such mature believers as the sons of Korah, these were the men who proclaimed, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. If those mature men are able to go through such a treacherous time that they would be able to candidly pen such a song of self-counsel, then this ought to teach us a bit in regard to how we view these times when our souls are cast down. We should not gauge the health of man by standards of looking around the world and seeing what looks common. Because all we can measure in this world is what a healthy, broken person looks like. When we look to find healthy man by measuring sin, fallen humanity, we begin with a misaligned standard. What should our standard be for healthy humanity? Who is it that God has said should be our standard for what mankind was meant to be? What true health is? Christ and Christ alone. He can be our only true standard for health. So in the world around us, mind you, not California, not in D.C., not those bad people out there who aren't in church. No, when we in this culture, in Stephenville, Texas, particularly amidst the people who are frequently and commonly in some form of moralistic religious circles, when we look at the stats and the standards of humanity, and we see someone who is despondent, disheartened, low, and depressed, we ought to keep in mind a psalm such as this. Why? Because we can begin to see that such a person is actually not unusual or sick. What would this psalm help us to see? Depression is normal. Depression is utterly common to mankind. Those who are created in the image of God yet live in a fallen and sin-cursed world. I would say it's quite abnormal to be able to hear of such atrocities in Turkey and Syria and not feel like throwing up. Can we be despondent, low, in a sinful manner? Goodness sakes, yes. But this is not always the case. 
This psalmist gives no hint as to the situation being caused by his own sinful guilt. In other psalms, we do read of such a thing. I remind you that the only perfect, healthy human to walk on this earth since the fall of man was known as the man of sorrows. What if we as God's people were to look at depression through the lens of what God says is normal? We could then see that times of real, true, deep sorrow and depression, those times of spiritual exhaustion, when the smile of God has set and hides behind that dark horizon of the world. When I'm far from Him, I thirst for Him, and I'm low, though I know what's true. Not only are these times completely normal, but they are in fact purposed by the Lord. By His loving hand, which casts His billows and His breakers. When all things seem to call to one another in opposition over me, and my soul itself is untrustworthy as it remains cast down, even when it's reminded of truth. Hear this, friends. What works does not mean what makes me feel better. We see the psalmist's goal is that he would cling to the truth of who the Lord is through the darkness. Until the smile of God's providence shall come upon him to shine again, no matter how long that may take. Are you one who thirsts for the Lord? Who's low and can't seem to overcome it? My friend, nothing uncommon to man has overcome you. Rather, this time, yes, even this time is by the hand of the Lord. That your heart, my heart, the congregation of the people of God. That our hearts might be trained to cling to Him. That you might walk with Him through the valley of the shadow of death as you pant for the living God. There was one who came. And Jesus cried out in the book of John. Let any who thirst come to me. He told a woman at the well while she was in her self-inflicted dejection that he is the one who can cause rivers of water to spring out from her soul. He is the one who in fact perfectly fulfills this psalm. He is the one who claims that it speaks of him first and foremost. You see, the one who the psalmist longs for has come. He is the living water, the one whose spirit causes streams of water to burst from the soul of those who trust in him. The psalmist longed for the presence of God, and God sent his presence down in God with us. We have a God who in 1 Timothy 1.11 is known as God, the blessed God. This, this blessed God, this means the God of utter self-happiness. The one in whom resides absolute self-sustaining joy, delight, contentment, and satisfaction. This blessed God, the God from whom flows the infinite attribute of happiness. He it is that wrapped himself in flesh. He it is who stepped down into humanity. 
that He, the blessed God, might become the man of sorrows. He who had in eternity past always been in perfect relationship with the Trinity Godhead put on flesh that tears might flow down the cheeks of this infinite sovereign. You have a high priest who has come to bear your sins and your burdens. One who is intimately acquainted with grief. Grief unlike any that man in his sinful state might understand. He came to a garden thousands of years ago. That he might utter the very words of this psalmist. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. The God of happiness felt the turmoil within, the agony of thirst for the presence of the Lord, for the love therein that he had enjoyed for eternity past. And why is it that Christ Jesus would put himself through such utter sorrow? He makes his reasoning plain in John 17. In verses 24 through 26. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. That you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Christ became the singer of this song of sorrow that he might invite you into the unyielding joy and love that he shares with the Father. The blessed God. You who are not in Christ. Are you downcast? Does it seem as though no matter. <clears throat> what state you find yourself in life. You're always left wanting. Maybe you know all the answers. Maybe you've been here for years. You know the gospel back upside down left and forward and instead that sin you treasure so intimately in your heart continues to disappoint you and yet it continues to hinder you from any draw to come to Christ let me simply invite you to know this blessed one this God of happiness who became the man of sorrows, that you might be able to have life lived to the fullest in Him. That you might be blessed as He is blessed. Let me assure you that coming, 
to know Christ will not solve all of your problems. In fact, it will most likely create many more. And yet it will solve the one and only problem that matters eternally. In Christ, you can find true, eternal peace with the God who sustains your life. You can receive a new song to sing in the darkest times. One of utter hope and help. Would you know this blessed God who became a curse for us that you might share in the love that He has in Himself for all time? You who are in Christ. This song has been given to us. That we might set our hope. On praising the one true God. So are you downcast? Do you love someone who is? Sing this song to your soul. Walk in the wisdom of our mature and holy brother who has gone before us and penned this psalm to instruct us in how to have hope when your soul is depressed and unyielding. In times of great depression, remember that this is to be sung by the congregation. It assumes that I cannot remain isolated. Have you paid mind to the resource center out there in the main forum? We've supplied those resources. Every book or pamphlet out there has been read by at least one of the elders and approved to be on those shelves in hopes of providing means by which you might be pointed to the word of God, the sufficient revelation of God. That your soul might be equipped to rejoice in Him and to know how to handle the family cow or the bear. The gleaming glint of bear claws or tree branches. But for now we have this song. This song to be sung to train us. So as the psalmist cries out to God in honest petition, so also, congregation, we must. As the psalmist calls to mind times of past joy from praising God, so also, congregation, we must. As the psalmist preaches to his soul, so also, congregation, we must. As the psalmist affirms God's faithful love and sovereignty, so also we must. As the psalmist sings to the Lord at night, pleading and praising, so also congregation, we must. As the psalmist goes on singing through the night, as long as his soul still thirsts, so also congregation, we can. Don't settle for trying to temporarily feel better. Rather, would you be like Jacob? And though it pain you forever with a limp, cling yourself so tightly to the Lord until He shall bless you. Would you sing this song to one another? Would you sing this psalm 
like our Savior sang. Would you be a people of God who sing this song to ourselves in the dark and to one another in the light? Would you, along with the psalmist, command your soul, O soul, hope in God, for you shall again praise Him, your salvation and your God. Father God, thank you for your word. Lord, that you have come and made Away for those of us who are low to be comforted in our affliction. You have made a way through Christ Jesus for us to have peace, unyielding peace, that in the times we feel forgotten, we may know to the core of our identity our God does not forget. Lord, though as we pant for for you, for our living God, would you satisfy us? Would you cause streams of life to well within us as we await your fulfillment of all things? Lord, as those among us who are mature are cast down, would you keep us, Father, for trying to make ourselves better than a son of Korah or the man of sorrows? Oh, but Lord, would we not sit idly by as we and or our brothers and sisters in Christ struggle? But Lord, would you give us a song to sing? Lord, would you stir in our hearts this psalm to be sung that you might train us that we might hope in you and cling to that hope until the darkness fades and home is where we find ourselves at last. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.